Hey, it's Brian. And before we get started, just a quick note that this episode and the other five in this special series discuss Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. If there are little ones within earshot, save this for later. Thanks. The post office department has a thing called the dead letter office, and that's where all mail goes that cannot be delivered. Since there is not a Santa Claus address that exists, all that mail was going to the dead letter office. This is Nancy Pope from the Smithsonian's Postal History Museum, and you're hearing part of a conversation I had with her back in 2016 for an earlier episode of Christmas Past. There were postmasters who did not want to just send them to the dead letter office because at the dead letter office they would get destroyed. The function of the dead letter office is to take a letter and try to get it to someone. So if they have to, they open it to find another address a sender or a receiver, and then they send it on to somebody. If there's nobody they can send it on to, it's destroyed. What do you do when something like children writing letters to Santa Claus, something cute and innocent, or in some cases desperate and heartbreaking, what do you do when it ends up becoming a major problem for the people responsible for delivering those letters? Not just a logistical problem, like where do you actually send a letter when it's addressed to the North Pole, but also a public relations problem. Because sending those letters to the dead letter office, where they'd be destroyed, just didn't sit too well with the public. So among other tactics, the post office would hand some of the letters over to be published in the newspapers. But members of the public didn't seem all that interested in getting involved. They just liked reading the letters in the paper. They would even do contests. They would put up four or five letters from kids and ask the writers, which is the best letter, which is Kind of like, you know, which is the most pitiful story, but it was publicity. Got people reading the papers. Releasing the letters to the newspapers and the general public was a sort of on-again, off-again thing for a couple of years. But it soon became part of the annual postal laws and regulations, which means that it became the official rule. Throughout the month of December, anyone, any charity, any family, any single person or business or church group, Anyone who met some basic qualifications and was willing to show a little Christmas spirit could claim one or more letter and get a chance to play Santa Claus, assuming, of course, that the letter included a return address. On the one hand, the Postal Service had made history by enacting a policy where, for the first time ever, mail addressed to one person, namely Santa Claus, could legally be delivered to another. But on the other hand, they hadn't really solved their own problem. Actually, they made it worse. Because, like I said, there just weren't enough takers for the letters. So they were just piling up, as was the bad publicity. The newspapers had already made a big deal about this during the 1912 Christmas season, and it looked like they were gearing up to do it again in 1913. Um, 1913 was also the year of John Gluck, so it, it gets kind of interesting. It gets kind of interesting. This is Brian Earle from Christmas Past. And I'm about to introduce you to a man who embodied modern Christmas in a way unlike any single person before and maybe since. Someone who captured the magic and enchantment of what Christmas had recently become, who commandeered the burgeoning news media to spread his brand of Christmas cheer far and wide, who promoted charity and kindness and the spirit of giving. Problem was, he was a bit of a scammer. This is My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper a special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. Chapter 2. Santa's Secretary and the Gun-Toting Boy Scouts 
John Gluck was a second-generation customs agent running the family business. And when we meet him in 1913, he's in his mid-30s, but middle age has arrived early. His soft features and receding hairline make him appear older. He's been married and divorced, and he's living in a bachelor apartment at the back of a restaurant. But the life of a divorced workaday customs broker did have its moments. Like that one time he found himself in the papers. One of his customs jobs had him helping to detain an eloping couple when they entered New York. And that kind of excitement and attention and status was something John Gluck craved. He knew a lot of people and, and punched above his station in life. He loved to be near the successful. That's Alex Palmer. He's the New York Times best-selling author of The Santa Claus Man, on which this story is based. And his, his personality wanted something more romantic out of life. He would read all the papers and poured over all the films and everything that was all the mass media that was surrounding him at this really exciting time in the city. Uh, and he couldn't help but be kind of pulled up in it and feel like he wanted to be part of that. And luckily for him, he could. This was a time of big growth for the newspaper industry. In just 20 years, between 1880 and 1900, the number of daily newspapers in America went from 917 to 2,226. By 1900, America was publishing more than half the newspapers in the world, which meant that exposure to various kinds of publicity was quickly becoming a part of normal, everyday life for more and more people. This was all new. Now, Gluck was the kind of guy who always had a handful of schemes going on. Some idea for a new business, some little side hustle over here, a project in progress over there. At one point, he was even promoting something called window cribs, which are, unfortunately, exactly what they sound like. He was a dreamer and a climber. And to an ambitious guy like him, all this media and publicity stuff was an opportunity. He continued working as a customs broker, but he started picking up these gigs on the side doing publicity work, uh, where he could use his storytelling skills in a way that was maybe towards something a little more fun than, than customs broker work. And he was good at it. One of his early successes was promoting the renovation of New York City's Washington Market. For a while, that was basically the city's Christmas headquarters. It was even the home of the country's first commercial tree lot. One of his next jobs, though, not so successful. One of his earliest, biggest clients was George Tillieu in uh, Coney Island. He uh, was helping to promote a big event that they had out there. This uh, It was going to be the first bullfight in New York City. Uh, they promoted it as a, a bloodless bullfight. For legal reasons, they couldn't actually have any kind of animal cruelty going on at uh, this this annual event in Coney Island. But he was became the big promoter of this event. It was a widely publicized, and it was part of the Coney Island Mardi Gras celebration, which took place each year and was a, a, just a massive event with the parades and celebrating. And this bullfight was one of the central entertainments of the event. But despite all his Buck's promotions about it being a bloodless bullfight and uh, much of the publicity that he ginned up, generating a ton of interest and, and filling the seats, uh, it ended up 
going sideways pretty quickly. The bull ended up rushing the stage, uh, rushing at the crowd and injured itself, terrifying the audience and uh, ended up cracking, getting it cracked down on by the local law enforcement for breaking the bloodless uh, rule. And uh, he ended up being arrested in the process, along with most of the people involved in the demonstration. But as the saying goes, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Despite that, it was still this very exciting experience for him. This is something that, uh, you know, he's, his name was in the press. He was getting a lot of attention. It was something people were talking about. Uh, it was this mass media moment that he now had helped to generate, which was a very exciting thing. But once he had a taste of that, it was hard for him to resist uh, wanting to taste it again. And so a chance to get a piece of all that action with the letters piling up at the post office? seemed like the perfect opportunity to redeem himself and make his mark. After all, it would be fitting. John Gluck was born on Christmas Day. That, plus his business background, convinced him that he was the man for the job. So he made his pitch. He had a pretty strong case to make for why he might make for a good uh, overseer of, of Santa's mail. He wrote a letter to the Postmaster General volunteering his services and, and kind of outlining his background as this businessman and someone who has a, a real strong skills around developing uh, these systems. And he, he really had thought through how this could work in a way that wouldn't raise the issues that had come up before about whether the kids receiving it are, are worthy or whether there's duplicates going out or the sort of the inefficiencies that were uh, criticized in years past. Uh, and the Postmaster General forwarded that on to the New York city postmaster who was convinced by it. He, he found it a, a compelling case, and the fact was nobody else had really come forward. And that was the beginning of the Santa Claus Association. Down the hall from Gluck's apartment at the back of a restaurant was some empty office space that the owner let him use as his central base of operations. And I'm using operations in air quotes. It was kind of seat of the pants. I think when it first kicked off, he, he really just had a handful of volunteers. And once word started to spread, then more volunteers came. So it was building it as he was going. He taught those volunteers his elaborate system for verifying, documenting, deduplicating, and prioritizing the letters. Picture it like a flowchart. A letter arrives at the Santa Claus Association. First thing, does it really belong here? Is it really a letter addressed to Santa Claus? It was illegal for anyone to open a letter that was actually addressed to a person. So it had to be definitively written to Santa. If it was to say S. Claus, there actually were a couple uh, S. Clauses that lived in New York City. Uh, might have been Sarah or Sam Claus. Uh, there was a Chris Kringles as well. If the letter doesn't belong, return it to the post office. Otherwise, proceed to step two. Does the content of the letter indicate any evidence of abuse or malnutrition or unsafe living conditions? If it does, refer it to the city's welfare department. Otherwise, proceed to step three. Does the letter represent more than one child from a single household? If it does, put it in a special group. Otherwise, put it in the main group. Then on to step four. Of the letters in the special and main groups, is any of them a duplicate from the same child or children? Or is there any evidence that someone is trying to game the system? Assuming everything looks legit, it's time for step five. And this is where the magic happened. Gluck's real innovations that set it apart from a lot of the other efforts that had been made in the past to answer Santa letters. Gluck 
said, we're not going to touch the gifts. We're not going to touch any donations. We're not, we don't need money. This is an all volunteer group. We get this space for free for this month. There's no overhead. All we are is a clearinghouse for Santa's mail. So we get the letters. Once we've vetted them and verified them, we send those letters out to folks who have offered to answer them and they could answer them however they liked. Now, you might be wondering, if the newspapers and the post office weren't able to attract enough people to respond to the letters, how was this one guy able to do it? Well, that Rolodex he'd built up through his customs work came into play, and so did his hustle. He started an outreach campaign by writing letters to potential donors from his contact list, and also to wealthy and connected people in the city. And some of those donors had last names like Vanderbilt. And because the association wasn't acting as a charity, just a middleman, it meant that no money was coming in except for enough to cover basic costs like stamps and stationery. And no gifts were going out. Donors themselves would send gifts directly to the recipients. Which meant that the Santa Claus Association was immune to the scrutiny of watchdog groups like the Charity Organization Society. As long as they were doing right by the post office, which was watching closely, everything would be great. And it was great. The early success brought glowing publicity to Gluck and his group. The newspapers referred to Gluck himself as Santa's secretary. And all that public attention brought more willing donors and more volunteers and more letters to process. Like, a lot more. Like when an entire school had all of its children write letters. Gluck and company found themselves inundated and, really, unprepared. On top of all of that, a volunteer part-time crew is about as reliable as you'd imagine. And managing that was a source of frustration for Gluck. But things got really tricky when some well-meaning, albeit confused donors, started sending gifts directly to the association itself. Because that's not how this was supposed to work. Now here they are in this 36th Street location and they've got a gift that has to go all the way to Brooklyn and these volunteers are already pretty overwhelmed. They don't really have time to go bring this to the kid. Now they had a problem they really weren't prepared to handle because they'd have to deliver those gifts to the recipients on their own. The good news was that help was on the way. Some automakers lent them cars to help them make the deliveries. The bad news was that they didn't need cars, they needed people. And this time it was Boy Scouts who came to the rescue. But not THE Boy Scouts. Nowadays we're familiar with the organization known as the Boy Scouts of America. That group formed in 1910 by William Boyce, the newspaper publisher. This was a time of large-scale migration from rural farm areas to cities. And with that came concern that boys were no longer learning patriotism and individualism. It was a whole thing. It was the same sentiment that inspired the formation of the YMCA just a few decades earlier. And it was what prompted Boyce to take part in this nascent scouting movement. And within just a few months, Boyce's rival publisher, William Randolph Hearst, decided that he wanted his own scouting group. And he called it not the Boy Scouts of America, but rather the American Boy Scouts. As you might imagine, this caused a little confusion, especially when it came to their fundraising efforts. And this was among the many reasons the two groups did not get along. I'm mentioning this now because it's going to come up again later. The American Boy Scouts soon changed their name to the United States Boy Scout, no S at the end, in order to differentiate themselves. But that's not the only thing that differentiated them from the Boy Scouts of America. They were more focused on the theatrics, these sort of military exercises and sort of making big 
public demonstrations of uh, marching and parades and sort of proto-military feel to them. But this is the crazy part. The members carried guns. So a rifle was a standard part of the uniform for these kids that were, you know, anywhere from 7 to to 17 years old. But uh, they would receive these actual rifles that could be loaded and and used, uh, you know, for target practice was the idea. But these kids were just each given guns to just kind of carry around. And there was a high-profile incident of a 11-year-old who had a, a rifle and kind of confronted a couple of, they, they got into a, a little bit of an argument with a couple other neighborhood kids and ended up shooting the gun and, and killing a seven-year-old in the process. So the United States Boy Scout was in damage control mode. They needed to untarnish their image. That's when Edwin McAlpin, the chief scout, reached out to Gluck. He heard about the association's needs and said, I've got these, these kids that could, uh, could offer assistance. However you can use them, these are resources that are available to you. Dozens of these scouts arrived at the association headquarters and were there ready to help. Uh, it, it, it really created just the right impression. They were sort of the perfect vessels to do this work, to, to go door to door and sort of present the public face of the association in this way. They delivered packages that were sent there. They went to the houses to verify that, uh, you know, the kids were what they say they were. That there actually was a kid living at the house that was receiving a package. They became one more arm of the association's organization. Everything worked out perfectly for both parties. The packages were getting delivered. Gluck was pulling in some serious news coverage. And much of it was favorable to the scouts. And during their time working together, McAlpin saw what an effective mover and shaker Gluck was. So he gave him a job as an official fundraiser for the United States Boy Scout. Now, you might call that a conflict of interest, but that's only because it's totally a conflict of interest. And we'll get back to that. For now, let's get back to the matter at hand. Where, as the countdown to Christmas drew shorter, even more positive press led to a last-minute crush of letters and more gifts erroneously arriving at the association. But in the end, with just weeks to get the job done, a lean staff of volunteers and a shoestring budget, some loner cars and delivery boys wearing merit badges and neckerchiefs, the Santa Claus Association helped to get 17,000 children's letters answered. 17,000. It was a massive and unprecedented success. But more than that, for Gluck himself, it was reinvention and validation and recognition. And kind of the capstone of that first year came after the holiday season had ended. There was a New York Times Magazine reporter, Edward Marshall, that profiled Gluck in, I think it was mid-January, just this massive full-page spread with a you know pencil drawing of, of Gluck himself looking very serious. Uh, the headline was, played Santa and solved an economic problem. But he wasn't about to sort of sit on his laurels either. As successful as the first year had been, Gluck's next actions would be trying to top himself. So how do you top an act like that? He was going to take the Santa Claus Association to new heights, and I mean that literally, and climb his way up to the innermost circles of New York City's wealthy and powerful, even if it meant getting just a little bit shady. He shifted from being John D. Gluck, customs broker, to being something different almost every time a reporter asked him. It became a lot of gray area, and that gray area would only expand. 
You've been listening to My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. It's produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. We had music in this episode from Chris Zabriskie, Dave Depper, Kai Engel, Dexter Britton, Blue Dot Sessions, and Kevin McLeod. The entire series is available now under the regular podcast feed for Christmas Past, so look for Christmas Past wherever you get your podcasts. And the rest of the season's episodes are coming soon, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. And if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Thank you to Alex Palmer and Nancy Pope. Again, that interview with Nancy was from 2016. Sadly, Nancy passed away earlier this year. This series may not have come to be without her. The first time I'd ever heard the name John Gluck was from her. You can find out more about everyone involved in the series and discover some bonus content over at christmaspast.media. And you can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by using the hashtag MyDearSanta. Santa.